Very good morning to you. If you've got a Bible, turn with me to John chapter 20. If you've been around over the past several weeks, you'll know that as part of our broader series on justice, we've been doing a series on women. And a couple of weeks ago, I began an attempt at looking at the very important issues of women and justice through the lenses of male privilege and how as men our privilege can so easily blind us to the very many injustices that women experience on a on a daily basis sometimes right in front of our eyes and sometimes even by our own doing and if you're not sure what I mean by male privilege or you're not even sure whether or not it exists you can either uh, listen to my talk from a couple of weeks ago or read into the subject or indeed uh, both and more but as promised you'll be glad to hear here we have a part two on the subject of women and justice uh, very much from my own male perspective and therefore clearly with all the limitations and biases that uh, that come with it but this morning as we as we draw to a close on these initial conversations around women i wanted to spend some time looking at the life of jesus to see what we can learn from him and the way that he interacted with and treated women. As you uh, possibly know, Southwest London Vineyard is one of uh, thousands of churches, vineyard churches all over the world, uh, part of a, a vineyard family of churches. And, and back in 1987, some 35 years ago now, uh, around this time of year actually, John and Eleanor Mumford, along with their, at the time, two young boys, started and planted this church, the Southwest London Vineyard. And at the beginning, of course, it was just the four of them, but slowly and surely as they faithfully planted and watered, God uh, made the thing grow and, and people started to come along. Now, the reason I'm telling you this is because right back at the very start, when there were only, I don't know, seven or eight people sat in John and Ellie's sitting room in Chatsworth Avenue, Ellie had a clear impression, um, picture, vision, if you like, of, of Jesus in her mind's eye, surrounded by the disciples and a whole host of people having an absolute blast, having a party. And in this impression that she had, what she heard Jesus say to her was, all I'm asking you to do is to mimic me. All I'm asking you to do is to mimic me. And, and this morning, as we look at women and justice, perhaps there's an invitation being extended to us by the Spirit of God that all we need do is mimic Jesus. So uh, let's have a look at John chapter 20, and we're going to start by looking at the culmination, the, the very high point of the Gospels and the resurrection of Jesus. Uh, and this passage, I, I look at this passage as being one of the key texts um, when it comes to understanding the central role women play both in the scriptures and indeed in the history of humankind. As these women are chosen and empowered by God to carry the, the, and bear witness to the fundamental uh, essence of the gospel, the fundamental truths of the gospel. Uh, 
And so uh, there was Mary Magdalene, she, she was there, uh, Mary, the mother of James, uh, Salome was there, Salome, mother of James and John. And, and all of them, according to Mark chapter 16, were at Jesus' grave and they brought spices so that they might go and anoint him. But if you look uh, back at Luke chapter 24, verse 10, among the first women to discover the empty tomb was uh, Joanna. I mean, who knew? Now, uh, Joanna was one of the followers of Jesus who in Luke 8, it says, helped provide financially for Jesus' uh, ministry, along with Susanna and many others, but more of that in a moment. Uh, as I said, Salome was there, Salome, mother of James and John, and Salome witnessed the crucifixion. And according to Mark chapter 15, verse 40, uh, chapter 16, verse 1, uh, she went to the tomb on the Sunday. And then there's Mary Magdalene. Now, uh, Mary had witnessed both the crucifixion and the burial. That's in Matthew 27, 61, Matthew 28, verse 1, Mark 15, verse 40, verse 47, John uh, 19, verse 25, uh, and was with the other women who went to the tomb on Sunday. That's in Mark 16, verse 1, John 20, verse 1. And as we'll see, she was also the first person to see Jesus alive. And so here are all these women, and there may have been more, in, including quite possibly Mary, Jesus' mother, witnesses to the crucifixion, preparing Jesus' body for burial, and then going to the tomb on Sunday. And my point is that it's women who are the constant and powerful presence through the most significant events in the history of the human race, the crucifixion, the death, and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Have a look at John chapter 20, starting in verse 11. Now Mary stood outside the tomb crying. As she wept, she bent over to look into the tomb and saw two angels in white seated where Jesus' body had been, one at the head and the other at the foot. They asked her, woman, why are you crying? They have taken my Lord away, she said, and I don't know where they've put him. At this, she turned around and she saw Jesus standing there, but she did not realize that it was Jesus. He asked her, woman, why are you crying? Who is it you're looking for? Thinking he was the gardener, she said, sir, if you've carried him away, tell me where you have put him and I will get him. Jesus said to her, Mary. She turned toward him and cried out in Aramaic, Rabboni, which means teacher. Jesus said, do not hold on to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father. Go instead to my brothers and tell them, I am ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. Mary Magdalene went to the disciples with the news, I have seen the Lord. And she told them that he had said these things to her. Now, one of the many things here in this passage, and indeed from the way the Gospels give an account of the life of Jesus, is in the context of the cultural norms of the day, all of Jesus' interactions with women are nothing short of extraordinary. Uh, first century Palestine, you know, the world into which Jesus was born, was clearly a male-dominated society, but it certainly wasn't the first, nor was it the last. Uh, in ancient Greece, women effectively had the social status uh, of a slave. A wife wasn't permitted to eat or interact with guests in what would have been her husband's home. Girls were not educated and when they grew up they weren't allowed to speak in public. 
things weren't much better uh, in Rome. Uh, the status of Roman women was also very low. Roman law placed a wife under the absolute control of her husband, who had ownership of her and all of her possessions. A husband had the power of life and death over his wife, just as he did his children. And again, women were not allowed to speak in public. Around the same time, uh, Jewish culture in the first century was decidedly patriarchal. Uh, the daily prayer, we've, we've come across this a, a couple of times in the past few weeks as we've done this series, but the daily prayer of Jewish men included this prayer of thanksgiving. Blessed are you, Lord our God, ruler of the universe, who has created me a human and not a beast, a man and not a woman, an Israelite and not a Gentile, circumcised and not uncircumcised, free and not slave. Which, by the way, is the blessing that some scholars suggest is what Paul is alluding to when he declares in Galatians 3.28, there is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is neither male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. Anyway, I digress. The point being, things for women were not great in a patriarchal Jewish first century. When it came to religious practice, this, this is all the prior to Christianity, which in actual fact radically altered things for women. Um, but, but prior to that, men were uh, required to pray certain prayers daily, but women were not. Uh, while the study of sacred texts was regarded as extremely important for men, women weren't allowed to study them. In fact, a first century rabbi is noted for saying, rather should the word of the Torah be burned than entrusted to a woman. At the temple in Jerusalem, women were restricted to the outer court. In synagogues, they were separated from the men, not permitted to read aloud. And especially important when it comes to our passage here in John chapter 20, women were not allowed to be a witness in a religious court. Their testimony wasn't considered trustworthy or reliable. And yet God in his wisdom and grace chooses society's least reliable witnesses to bear witness to the most significant event in the whole of history. And it's into this cultural context of patriarchy and misogyny that Jesus comes crashing in and disrupts and not only challenges the status quo, but as the incarnation of the living God embodies a way of being, a way of treating women that was utterly extraordinary. Uh, for Christ, women made in the image of God have an intrinsic value equal to that of men. In, in Matthew chapter 19, citing Genesis 1 verse 27, Jesus says, at the beginning the Creator made them male and female. And, and in fact, what he's saying is women, just like men, are made in the image of God. And throughout the life of Jesus, we see every interaction with women that he has as an incarnational embodiment of that fundamental belief. Jesus doesn't primarily treat women as female per se, but as human beings made in the image of God. He doesn't perceive them purely in terms of their sex or their age or their marital status or whether or not they have children. He sees them as who they are in relation to God. And considering the backdrop of first century Middle Eastern Judaic culture, Jesus' words and actions are strikingly inclusive. 
Author Philip Yancey comments, for women and other oppressed people, Jesus turned upside down the accepted wisdom of the day. Biblical scholar Walter Wink writes, Jesus violated the mores of his time in every single encounter with women recorded in the four Gospels. And Jesus, Jesus defies the cultural expectations of his day in so many ways. But just to get us going, here are three as a starting point. And as we look at these three, I want us, uh, and especially the men amongst us, I want us to consider how we might mimic Jesus in this, our cultural context. Clearly, we're not living in first century Athens or Rome or Jerusalem, but we're here in 21st century London. But tragically, we still have a very, very long way to go for women to be treated as equals. And so, in what ways can we, especially as male followers of Jesus, in what ways can we mimic him such that we are seeing the justice of the kingdom being extended in and through all of our interactions with women? What might this look like for us today? Okay, so the first thing I want to highlight is that Jesus always treats women with respect and compassion. Have a look at verse 15 in John chapter 20. He asked her, woman, why are you crying? Who is it you are looking for? I love this first encounter between the risen Christ and Mary. I love that in a reference back to the first woman, Eve, and the Garden of Eden, here in the garden tomb, Jesus sees and names Mary woman. And it's not patronizing, it's not derogatory, it comes from, I think, this place of respect. And we see Jesus embodying the same thing over and over again throughout the Gospels. We see it in Jesus' encounter with Fatini, known uh, to most of us as the Samaritan woman at the well, who Ruth looked at a few weeks ago. We see it in his encounter with the woman in John 8, dragged out by the teachers of the law and the Pharisees who want to stone her. We see it throughout the Gospels where Jesus, challenging and confronting the religious law of the time, refuses to view women as either unclean or especially deserving of punishment. According to uh, Old Testament Jewish law, women who were menstruating, or anyone who had a flow, any kind of flow of blood, were considered ritually unclean. And so any woman on her period wouldn't be allowed to join in with pretty much any religious ritual. And on top of that, anything or anyone she touched was deemed unclean. The most dramatic story about this is the account of the woman who had a flow of blood for 12 years in, in Luke uh, chapter 8, uh, verse 40. And I, I spoke on this text a few weeks ago during Lent, but I love the way Luke emphasizes um, Jesus' respect and compassion for the woman by the way he positions the story and, and juxtaposes, juxtaposes it against that of Jairus who you remember is an official of the synagogue and male. Uh, and what Jesus does is he, he turns his attention away from the man, away from the synagogue official, and instead gives all his attention to the woman. And by doing so, puts them both on equal footing. And you have to remember that when she touches Jesus' garment, her very touch would have rendered Jesus unclean. But Jesus says nothing of her ritual impurity. But instead, he calls her daughter and says that her faith has healed her and go in peace. Not only does Jesus treat women with respect and compassion, he refuses to treat them as inferior. 
Have a look at verse 16. Jesus said to her, Mary. She turned toward him and cried out in Aramaic, Rabboni, which means teacher. Having first called her woman, Jesus now calls her Mary. And this whole encounter between the two takes on this tenderness and this kindness, this sense of knowing between them both. And as Jesus calls her Mary, she in turn calls him Rabboni, which means teacher. Uh, Back in Luke chapter 13, Jesus heals a woman who's been crippled for 18 years. uh, And he lays hands on her in the temple and says, woman, you are set free from your infirmity. Now, when the leader of the synagogue uh, finds out about what's been going on, he becomes indignant because Jesus has healed on a Sabbath. But what Jesus does is he gives her a title of particular dignity. He calls her a daughter of Abraham. Now, uh, women had never been called daughters of Abraham, even though the expression son of Abraham was often used to, uh, to indicate that a male Jew was recognized as, as, as bound by a covenant with God. But with this title, Jesus is recognizing this woman as having equal worth, equal status, equal value. And this, this phrase from John 20, verse 16, Rabboni, which means teacher, that, that gives us another real insight into Jesus' treatment of women. In one of the most um, striking images of female discipleship in the scriptures, we need look no further than, than Mary, the sister of Lazarus and Martha. You know, in the famous story where Martha gets all upset, uh, her sister for not helping her out in the kitchen, it's so easy to miss the entire point. But uh, Mary is behaving like one of the men. She's sitting at the feet of a rabbi. And, and in fact, this is what someone did if they wanted to become a rabbi themselves. So this, this very image, this picture is scandalous, to say the least. This just wasn't acceptable in that day and age or culture. Yet, the way Jesus responds to Martha's outrage is especially liberating. Notice what Jesus says about Mary's choice to adopt the posture of a disciple. He says this, but the Lord answered and said to her, Martha, Martha, you are worried and bothered about so many things, but only one thing is necessary, for Mary has chosen the good part which shall not be taken away from her. Jesus is affirming Mary's choice and desire to become a rabbi. Jesus treats women with respect and compassion. He refuses to see them as inferior, and Jesus empowers women and gives them agency. Have a look at verse 17. Jesus said, Do not hold on to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father. Go instead to my brothers and tell them, I am ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. Mary Magdalene went to the disciples with the news, I have seen the Lord, and she told them that he had said these things to her. Now, Maybe it's because of a combination of patriarchal tradition and our own refusal to see what's in front of us. But it's so easy for us to miss the role that women play, not not only in the Gospels, but then in the subsequent spontaneous expansion of the church. The Gospels give us the names of disciples of Jesus who were women. According to Luke uh, chapter 8, Uh, Mary, um, Joanna, and Susanna were three of them. 
it says this uh, in verse 1. After this, Jesus traveled about from one town and village to another, proclaiming the good news of the kingdom of God. The twelve were with him, and also some women who'd been cured of evil spirits and diseases. Mary, called Magdalene, from whom seven demons had come out. Joanna, the wife of Chusa, the manager of Herod's household. Susanna, and many others. These women were helping to support them at their own means. So, not only are we told about the twelve, and then these three women by name, but we're also told that there were many others, meaning many other women, who not only followed Jesus around, which, by the way, is the very definition of a disciple in relation to a travelling rabbi, but that they also supported Jesus financially. Uh, Back to our text here in John chapter 20, it's Mary Magdalene who's commissioned by Jesus effectively as apostle to the apostles, as the one sent by Jesus to testify to his resurrection. In the earliest Christian church movement, throughout the ministry of Paul and the other apostles, women continued to be honoured and included as deacons, elders, prophets, teachers and apostles. In Acts uh, chapter 16, verses 11 to 15, Lydia of Philippi, uh, she was a wealthy dealer in purple cloth. She hosted a gathering of the saints in her home. Uh, That's what we would call a church. Uh, Phoebe, Chloe and the mother of uh, Rufus are also named by Paul as being among those women who served as deacons or servants in the early church. Uh, Romans 16 verse 1 says, I commend to you our sister Phoebe, who's a servant of the church, who's a deacon of the church, which is a hardwood. Uh, 1 Corinthians 1 verse 11, For I've been informed concerning you, my brethren, by Chloe's people, that there are quarrels among you. Romans 16 verse 7 says, Greet Andronicus and Junior, Junior, so I don't know how to pronounce that, uh, Greet Andronicus and Junior, my kinsmen and my fellow prisoners, who are outstanding among the apostles, who were also in Christ before me. Here is Paul naming Junior, who is a woman, as a female apostle, and saying that not only was she outstanding, but that she came to faith before Paul himself. Uh, yeah, then there's uh, Priscilla and Aquila. Uh, Priscilla and her husband Aquila referred to Paul um, in Romans 16, 3, as my fellow workers in Christ Jesus. They're always named together, but according to custom, the more prominent is always named first. And so it's likely that Priscilla was the stronger teacher, and so would have been known uh, for her gifting within the early church. And then, especially when you read in Acts chapter 18, verse 26, it was she was the one who instructed Apollos. Apollos was another <clears throat> early apostle, um, you know, Paul watered, uh, Paul planted, Apollos watered, but God made it grow, that, that Apollos. But she was the one who instructed Apollos about the Holy Spirit. It says this, uh, he, Apollos, began to speak out boldly in the synagogue, but when Priscilla and Aquila heard, the, heard him, they took him aside and explained to him the way of God more accurately. Jesus treats women with respect and compassion. He refuses to treat them as inferior He empowers women and gives them agency. And when we look more closely at the scriptures, there is so much more than perhaps we've been seeing. And as we look, you will not find a passage in the Bible where Jesus is irritated by a woman's presence, 
where he talks down to her in condescension, or where he regards her questions as less important than those of his male disciples. We won't find a passage in the Bible where Jesus makes a woman the butt of a joke or an object of scorn. Instead, we find a saviour who in John 4 engages a woman's theological questions with intellectual rigour, who regarded women as people and not as temptresses, who in John 8 intervenes to shield from shame. No social or cultural custom could prevent him from looking a woman in the eye. No sordid past could prevent him from regarding a woman as an image bearer of God. No theological error could prevent him from speaking to a woman with gentleness. In her speech, are women human? Dorothy Sayers put it this way, and I'll, I'll end with this. Perhaps it is no wonder that the women were first at the cradle and last at the cross. They had never known a man like this man. There never has been such another. A prophet and teacher who never nagged at them, never flattered or coaxed or patronised, who never made arch jokes about them, never treated them either as the women, God help us, or the ladies, God bless them, who rebuked without querulousness, praised without condescension, who took their questions and arguments seriously, who never mapped out their sphere for them, never urged them to be feminine or jeered at them for being female, who had no axe to grind and no uneasy male dignity to defend, who took them as he found them and was completely unselfconscious. There is no act, no sermon, no parable in the whole gospel that borrows its pungency from female perversity. Nobody could possibly guess from the words and deeds of Jesus that there was anything inferior about a woman's nature. So how do we do it? How do we become like Jesus? How do we mimic Jesus? This is how um, John Stott put it. Uh, Paul teaches in 2 Corinthians 3 verse 18, you'll hear me say this all the time, we all who with unveiled faces reflect the Lord's glory are being transformed into his image with ever-increasing glory which comes from the Lord who is spirit. And so it's by the Spirit of Christ that we can be changed so that we can become more like Christ. Yes, we have a part to play in turning from what we know to be wrong. We have a part to play in the exercise of faith and discipline. But making us holy is essentially the work of the Holy Spirit. Archbishop uh, William Temple used to illustrate the point uh, like this. He said this. He said, It's no good giving me a play like Hamlet or King Lear and telling me to write a play like it. Shakespeare could do it. I can't. And it's no good showing me a life like the life of Jesus and telling me to live a life just like it. Jesus could do it. I can't. But if the genius of Shakespeare could come and live inside me, then I could write plays like he did. And if the spirit of Jesus could come and live inside me, then I would be able to live a life like he did. This 
is the open secret of how to live life as a Christian. It's not about a struggling in vain to become more like Jesus, but about allowing him, by the power of his Spirit, to come and change us from the inside. And once again, we see that to have him as our example is not enough. We need him as our Saviour. It is through his death on the cross that the penalty of our sins may be forgiven, but it is through his Spirit making his home within us that the power of our sins may be overcome. Why don't you stand?